Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and your host for this show. And in this episode, I explore the idea of everyday asceticism, the art of setting limits for ourselves in order to stand more firmly and authentically in our lives. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. What America needs in the face of the tremendous urge toward uniformity, desire of things, the desire for complications in life, for being like one's neighbors, for making records, etc., is one great healthy ability to say no. To rest a minute and realize that many of the things being sought are unnecessary to a happy life, and that trying to live exactly like one's successful neighbor is not following the essentially different dictates, possibly, of a widely different underlying personality, which a person may possess and yet consciously try to rid himself of, the conflict always resulting in some form sooner or later, of a neurosis, sickness, or insanity. The quote that heads up this episode comes from an interview that Jung gave in 1931 to an American reporter living in Europe. It reflects themes on American culture that Jung would return to several times over the course of his life, in both interviews and articles. His primary observation, and that which underlies most of his thoughts on the subject, has to do with the heightened intensity of American life. This intensity Jung sees reflected in things like the relentless tempo of living, the general unrootedness, what we might call the chronic mobility of the population, an almost exaggerated preference for extroversion, and an ever-escalating material competitiveness, that constant pressure for keeping up with the Joneses, as the saying goes. And all of this, Jung feels, is a symptom of a dangerous one-sidedness in the American psyche. It reflects an energy that is pushing ever forward and upward, leaving the individual with no foundation underneath, no ground on which to stand. In making these observations, Jung will insist that he is not being critical 
of America. Instead, he states that he is attempting to understand the American psyche, to approach it from the standpoint of a psychologist, of a doctor. He sees in the factors he identifies a source of unhealth and suffering and hopes to offer something conducive to healing. And of course, today we would probably recognize that the symptoms that Jung pointed out have long since spread beyond the United States. The rapid growth of communication technologies has amplified and accelerated this development. And so we could say with some justification that American culture, in some aspects at least, is no longer isolated within American borders. Jung's reflections on America in the 30s remain relevant to just about everyone today. When Jung talks about the need for a healthy ability to say no, he's talking about the importance of developing a kind of everyday asceticism, though he obviously doesn't use that word. But I think it's helpful for us to think in terms of something like this because it reminds us that effort is required. It doesn't just happen by itself. It's not enough to simply hear this idea and agree with it or to have good intentions of learning to say no more often. We have to do something. We have to put it into practice. I've talked about the idea of asceticism before on this podcast, and each time I do, I find it necessary to make the point that even though it involves qualities of abstinence, limitation, and discipline, saying no in different forms, asceticism is not primarily concerned with deprivation. As I said in episode 17 from season 2, Recovering the Spirit, the second part of my series on the fairy tale, The Seven Ravens. An ascetic practice involves a redirecting of our psychological energies inward, a tuning out of those things on which we normally focus so that we can tune in to the deeper dimensions of our experience. And Jung identifies four areas in need of this healthy no. The urge toward uniformity for being like one's neighbors, the desire of things, the desire for complications in life, and the compulsion for what he calls making records. Now, the urge toward uniformity has to do with the question of individuality and the challenges that one faces in attempting to recognize and realize that individuality. This is a topic that I have discussed from different angles in the last couple of episodes, numbers three and four from this season, receiving one's true name and imagining our proper life task. So I won't say much about it here. I'll just note that in our opening quote, Jung states that often it is something that we consciously try to rid ourselves of. In other words, when we do say no, it's to ourselves, to a full-blooded expression of our uniqueness in favor of a pale conformity. 
The second factor, the desire of things, of course, seems obvious on the face of it. But I think it's important that we don't just understand this as a moral injunction against greed. The real issue is in the misapplication of our desires. That is, we fail to recognize that what we are ultimately seeking, the experience of a meaningful or fulfilling life, cannot be satisfied by things. As I write in my book, Religious But Not Religious, satisfactions are fleeting and mercurial. What satisfies today will not satisfy tomorrow, as it is not the particular thing that is sought, the material object, the new experience, the sexual partner, but rather the excitement generated by the thing we want to possess. This is the model of human being as consumer, and it leads to the conflation of meaning with novelty and to the restless pursuit of stimulation and entertainment. And this leads directly into the next factor, the desire for complications in life. We have a great fear of boredom. Or to put it another way, we have a fear of being alone with our own minds. Stillness, simplicity, and silence, rather than being experienced as openings to wonder, to beauty, or to creativity, stir up instead anxiety and restlessness, a reaction that is more acute the further we are from knowing our true self. And these days, we try to drown out that anxiety and restlessness with a flood of information available at speeds and quantities unheard of even 30 years ago, let alone in the 30s when Jung was considering these questions. It's almost perverse, says the theologian and philosopher Raymond Panikkar, how we are bombarded by information as if we needed the latter for living life as humans. Information, I would quickly add, is not knowledge, and it is certainly not wisdom. And finally, we come to Jung's statement about making records. Now, on the one hand, this contrasts with the notion of the urge toward uniformity, as it points to the desire to stand out, to be special. On the other hand, it's really what we might call a disguised conformity because it's based on the attitude of comparison. We make records by being better than others, achieving more, earning more, gaining more publicity, right? A record is always relative to something else, to someone else's achievement. True individuality has no need of comparison. It expresses what it is regardless of what anyone else does or doesn't do. It is not seeking to win, but simply to be. Almost a hundred years have passed since Jung made these observations, and the issues that he raised have not diminished in any way, but have only become magnified. The need for a healthy ability to say no is more urgent today than ever. Today we're faced with a situation in which almost every impulse 
can be indulged by a series of clicks and pixels. Whatever natural guardrails may have once tempered such indulgence have long been washed away by the rising sea of our technological age. These issues, of course, were not created by the internet or by social media or by the ubiquity of computer screens. But it cannot be doubted that our digital tools often have been and continue to be used to amplify what traditionally has been called our lower nature. Ultimately, however, Though the situation today is, as I said, amplified, the underlying problem is an age-old one. Alan Watts gave a vivid description of this problem as it was experienced in 1951, 20 years after Jung's interview in his book, The Wisdom of Insecurity. And he wrote this, Our age is one of frustration, anxiety, agitation, and addiction to dope. Somehow we must grab what we can while we can and drown out the realization that the whole thing is futile and meaningless. This dope we call our high standard of living, a violent and complex stimulation of the senses which makes them progressively less sensitive and thus in need of yet more violent stimulation. We crave distraction. Each age deals with these issues in their own particular way. That the need for a healthy no is not just a phenomenon of modern life, but has an archetypal quality to it, is demonstrated by the fact that we find it symbolized in myths and fairy tales. For example, the seeking after ever greater stimulation and satisfaction that Alan Watts spoke about is reflected in the well-known story of the fisherman and his wife. So here, let me share an abridged version of this story. There was once a fisherman who lived with his wife in a pigsty not far from the sea. And every day the fisherman went fishing. And he fished, and he fished. And one day he was sitting with his line, looking into the smooth water. And he sat, and he sat. His line sank to the bottom, deep, deep down. And when he pulled it up, there was a big flounder on it. And the flounder said, Look here, fisherman, why not let me live? I'm not a real flounder, I'm an enchanted prince. What good would it do you to kill me? I wouldn't be much good to eat. Put me back in the water and let me go. The fisherman lets the flounder go and returns to his wife, who can't believe that her husband did not ask for a wish in return for letting the fish go. She sends him back to ask the flounder to change their pigsty into a cottage. And the story continues. The husband didn't really want to go, but neither did he want to cross his wife, so he went to the shore. And when he got there, 
The sea was all green and yellow and not nearly as smooth as before. He stood there and said, Little man, whoever you be, flounder, flounder in the sea, my wife, her name is Ilsebil, has sent me here against my will. The flounder came swimming and asked, Well, what does she want? It's like this, said the fisherman. I caught you, didn't I? And now my wife says I should have wished for something. She's sick of living in a pigsty. She wants a cottage. Just go home, said the flounder. She's already got it. This is a well-known story, of course. I'm sure you know how it goes. The fisherman's wife is never content. She keeps wanting more and more, and she keeps sending her husband to ask for it. Soon she wants a castle, then to be king, then emperor, and then pope. Each time that the fisherman returns to the sea, it's a little less calm than before. Each time he reluctantly asks for the things his wife demands, and each time the flounder grants them. But the wife's patience with her limitations in each instance grows shorter and shorter until finally she doesn't even last one night as Pope before demanding more. She's tormented by the thought that there might not be anything more that she could ask for. And suddenly it comes into her head that she would like to be able to make the sun and the moon rise. I want to be like God, she declares, and sends her husband off to make it happen. And the story goes on to describe what transpires next. A storm was raging. The wind was blowing so hard he could hardly keep his feet Trees and houses were falling, the mountains were trembling, great boulders were tumbling into the sea, the sky was as black as pitch, the thunder roared, the lightning flashed, the sea was rising up in great black waves as big as mountains and church towers, and each one had a crown of foam on top. He couldn't hear his own words, but he shouted, Little man, whoever you be, flounder, flounder in the sea, my wife, her name is Ilsebil, has sent me here against my will. Well, what does she want? asked the flounder. Dear me, he said, she wants to be like God. Just go home. She's back in the old pigsty already. And there they are living to this day. On the surface, it might seem obvious that this story is a morality tale about the evils of greed. But I think there is a little more to it than just that. First of all, we should be clear that it's not only the fisherman's wife who's at fault here, right? Without a doubt, her greediness is the driving force of the story, but the fisherman's passivity is just as much to blame 
for how things play out. Neither one of them is able to say no in the face of the wife's insatiable desire. But here's the thing I want to suggest about the conclusion of this story. I don't think it ends with a punishment, with a fall from a great height. I think the wife's final wish is granted. She wishes to be like God, and the couple find themselves back in their pigsty, in the condition in which they started. In many religious traditions, it's the case that the highest value is found in the lowliest places. This, for instance, is the meaning of the birth of Jesus in the stable in the Christian tradition. Pigsty and stable point to the same idea. If one wants to be like God, then one should hang out where God does. The mystics speak of a holy poverty. Of course, they attempted to live this out in a concrete way, but the ultimate point was never just a material or physical privation. It was a change of mind. It was not so much about not having things as not needing them, not desiring them. As the great scholar of mysticism, Evelyn Underhill, puts it, it is attitude, not act, that matters. The practice of asceticism is based on the understanding that we do not become our authentic selves by a process of addition, but rather subtraction. That is, it's by stripping away all that is superfluous, all that impedes our direct contact with life, all that distracts us from what is truly important, that we discover that underlying personality that Jung speaks of, that we already possess. At the beginning of the story, the fisherman already has all that he needs. This is indicated by the image of the smooth water into which he casts his fishing line. There are no cares or concerns that ruffle the surface, no turbulent desires to stir up anxiety or restlessness. He is, it seems, at one with nature, at one with life, at one with himself. And the story tells us that in that state, he sat and he sat, and his line went deep, deep down. He's able, in other words, to make contact with the depths of his being. And we might speculate that when he releases the flounder that is brought up from these depths, he doesn't ask for anything because there's nothing that he needs. And all of this calls to mind Jung's description of what the healthy ability to say no looks like. It is, he says, to rest a minute and realize that many of the things being sought are unnecessary to a happy life. We too, in a sense, must learn to sit and to sit, 
to stop and simply be present to what is. We often have this fantasy that some moment in the future will bring about the satisfaction of our desires. It's the fantasy of if only, right? If only we get this salary or that relationship or finally get that degree or, and this is the big one, if only we had a little more time, we would do X, Y, or Z. This is the fantasy that drives the fisherman's wife. Some future attainment, she imagines, will do the trick. But that's just the point. Those attainments do not do the trick. They do not slake her thirst, but paradoxically leave her more parched than before. Your life is shaped by the end you live for, writes Thomas Merton. You are made in the image of what you desire. And this, finally, is the takeaway for all of this. Learning to say no in the sense that Jung intended is a practice of getting clear about what we really want. The end that we want our life to be shaped by. The image in which we want our souls to be made. And in that way, A healthy ability to say no becomes the doorway to a greater and deeper yes. A doorway into the self, into this life, which is always right here and nowhere else. Because that, in my view, is ultimately the secret of our story. The pigsty stands for our own messy little life. Imperfect, incomplete, and yet still somehow immaculate. I'll be back in just a minute with this week's parting words. You'll find a list of all the sources used in this week's episode in the show notes. You'll also find links to connect with me on social media, as well as for my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the production of this show. You can do so for as little as the cost of a cup of coffee at Buy Me a Coffee. You'll even find some extras for this show posted there from time to time. Just hit the Support the Show link in the show notes. Thank you very much. Now here are this week's parting words. Without a doubt... Saying no to all the enticements of life is hard. I know I have certainly not mastered it and probably never will. So it's helpful to have reminders, to find places of encouragement. And one writer I turn to often is Raymond Panikkar, who I mentioned earlier, and particularly to a book that he wrote called A Dwelling Place for Wisdom. And here's a quote from that book 
that I come back to again and again whenever I feel I need to get myself back on track. And this is what he says. We should not squander our time with all kinds of things, although they may be important and pleasant, which do not constitute wisdom, do not bring salvation, and do not allow for joy to appear. All of us have known about this truth for a long time. One does not need to add anything new, only to recall the old. After all, we know all about this truth, but we have no time for it. Until next time.